Welcome to Sheet This Now, the podcast where every week we talk about a different story that should be made into a TV show or movie. My name is Tim Malloy. My normal co-host, Deirdre McCarrick, is not here this week, so I have a weird co-host. Joining us via Skype from Boston, Massachusetts, one of my favorite people, one of my dearest friends, Dr. John Meggs. How are you, John? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm glad that I'm, I'm both the, the, a weird um, co-host and also um, one of your favorite, favorite people. That's a good place to be. Today we're going to talk about 1972 and 1973 California, a very strange time when there were two different serial killers operating in Santa Cruz. The authorities often couldn't tell whether they had one serial killer, two, or even more because they couldn't quite keep track of who was committing what crimes. The killers were named Ed Kemper and Herbert Mullen. Kemper was a very strange character who would kind of buddy up to law enforcement and impersonate an ally or a safe person to prospective victims in order to gain their trust and then do horrible things. Herbert Mullen believed that he was killing people in order to prevent earthquakes. So as you can probably gather, there may be a psychological component to their motivations, which is why I wanted to talk with John. Yes, I'm a uh, clinical psychologist, and I just finished all my um, all, all my years of grad school, um, and uh, and I I don't I'm not a, I want to be clear I'm not a forensic psychologist I don't work with uh, like people who are in in prisons or who are uh, people who commit crimes like like we're talking about, but I do do a lot of therapy um, and I do do a lot of psychological testing and um, diagnosis and uh, you know looking at. Um, and I do work with with people with uh, you know a whole range of mental disorders from regular old depression to um, pretty intense psychotic disorders with crazy hallucinations and delusions and things like that. So uh, not necessarily an expert on forensic populations or serial killers or anything like that, but but I can give you some um, background and context for um, for this weird, scary time in Santa Cruz. There's another podcast I listened to where one of the hosts introduced the other host by saying, she's not a psychologist, but she's very interested in psychology and what makes people kill. So I feel like you're way more qualified than that person. Yeah, well, I, I guess so. We'll, we'll, we'll see how this goes. I mean, <laughs> but... Um... You're also a trained and very skilled improviser. Uh, we met in a class at Upright Citizens Brigade about 12 years ago. And our improv team once tied for second place in a competition. Despite all that success, you decided to quit and go get multiple degrees. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> so I saw the, uh, I, I'm one of those people, I don't know if we have a, a name for them yet, but, but people who decided, yeah, this, you know, being, being in a basement, um, um, and just making up stuff with my friends is not going to necessarily <laughs> make me, um, fulfill me in certain ways. But but it's weird because now I do work in a basement and I, I test people in a basement. So I guess I'm 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 stuck where I always am. So and and don't forget we were also asked to uh, asked to to leave the Del Close Marathon. That's our that's also our claim to fame. So yeah, the um, the Del Close Marathon is a huge festival where they make you pay. To you know perform. I'm not yeah exactly. <laughs> and and to be clear, we we asked to perform and then we asked and then we decided not to do it. Because we didn't want to pay. I mean, we're kind of the we were kind of the bad boys, you know, of the improv scene, circa two thousand seven. When that book comes out, you know, we'll be there'll be interviews with us, you know. So I'm just waiting. So, but until then, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna be a a, a doctoral level psychologist. <laughs> 
So Yeah, when they do the meet me in the bathroom of two thousand seven right. New York improv, we can totally exactly. yeah, yeah, get a paragraph. Yeah. I also want to say that, you know, in part of my job is I, I I listen to people all day. I mean I'm a as a therapist, you know, I'm very I, I think I'm very good at listening to people and helping them. Um, which which doesn't allow me many many chances to actually talk. So you know, talking to you, um, I may be a little more verbose than than I am on on a regular day. And see, that's a fancy word. When you get a doctorate, you use words like verbose. Absolutely not allowed in improv. <laughs> Good. So to get us started, our first segment is called Comps, where we talk about things that we think this story is like. It's like this meets this. And I think that this story is Zodiac meets Donnie Darko. The reason for that is, you know, Zodiac, of course, because we're talking about serial killings in uh, Northern California in about this time period, the 1970s. And Donnie Darko, because there's a lot of delusion and um, hallucinations experienced by, I think, at least one of the killers who we're talking about today. Dr. John, in your medical opinion, is there anything scarier than the rabbit in Donnie Darko? That's yeah. That's I mean we don't really uh, study that as much, but uh, but that yeah, that's pretty scary. That brings us to our next segment. Why now? Why tell this story now? Well, there's an epidemic of mass killings in this country, and whenever there's another school shooting or something like that, we get into this debate where people on the left tend to say guns are the root cause, and people on the right tend to say the root cause is mental illness. Um, recently there was a school shooting. The NRA said that the cause was partially psychotropic drugs. So we're not in a lot of agreement about the causes of these things, which makes it hard to come up with solutions and for anybody to get behind solutions. You might think that if mental health was, if Republicans believed that mental health was the cause, they would want to spend a lot of money to improve mental health treatment in this country. But that doesn't seem to be the case. So I think these two serial killers, Ed Kemper and Herbert Mullen, have interesting stories to tell because we can learn a lot from them. We have decades of hindsight. They're behind bars now. We can study really every aspect of what they did, and Kemper has been very willing to talk about what he did. So I just think there's an interesting opportunity here to understand, is there anything that we can learn about treating mental illness early to prevent things like this from happening, not just to keep people from becoming serial killers, but obviously to prevent any innocent people from being killed. These two are by no means the best representatives of people with mental illness or the most normal representatives of people with mental illness. They're extreme outliers of humanity and within the community of people with mental illness. But I do wonder if there was any way that they could have been reached sooner, treated sooner, and that could have been stopped from becoming so incredibly dangerous. Is there anything we could do to prevent the next people like this from arising? And when I say we, I mean we as a society, not you and me. Okay, good. I was, I was worried you were you were pulling me into something different. But yeah, this podcast is all a ruse just to get you to join my team of superheroes that I'm assembling. But the doctor, the the the, the psychologist in in the superhero movies tends to stay stay back in the base. So, but that's okay. So before we start our next segment, let's talk a little bit about Ed Kemper and Herbert Mullen and who they are. At the time of our story, the early 1970s, they're both in their 20s. Uh, Kemper has been portrayed on screen before on the Netflix TV show Mindhunter. He's the very huge guy who is helping the FBI. He's six foot nine in real life, very smart, very high IQ. And as you see on Mindhunter, he likes to buddy up to cops and prospective victims and present himself as kind of a safe person, friend, or ally. 
Uh, between May 1972 and April 1973, he proved that that was not the case. He killed five hitchhiking college students, one hitchhiking high school student, his mother and his mother's best friend. Uh, he also killed his grandparents when he was a teenager, uh, so it was only on his juvenile record. All of his victims are women except for his grandfather. He's especially well known for sex acts with his victims' bodies that are just disgusting. Herbert Mullen was born on April 18th, the anniversary of the San Francisco earthquake. This is very significant to him. Between October 1972 and February 1973, he killed 13 people, including a homeless man, a hitchhiking student, a priest, a high school friend and his wife, and a woman who gave him directions, as well as her children, also four teenage campers, and a man doing yard work. He would later tell authorities that he did all of this in order to prevent earthquakes, basically making human sacrifices so that the earth would not shake. Uh, we don't want to soft pedal their crimes. I don't think you can soft pedal those crimes. They're sickening and atrocious. We just want to talk about whether they could have been prevented um, through a better focus early on on diagnosing them. Yeah, it definitely seems, you know, after reading about these guys um, and, and their experience and kind of the history that's out there, it, it definitely seems like mental illness was a factor. Um, you know, how how much a factor it's, it's hard to know um when you think about how you know how someone um when you when you when you go and diagnose someone you, you really want to look at the context of their of their life you want to look at their history um you want to look at how they see the world um and you want to um get an understanding of um what stresses them what gets in the way um you know, sometimes looking at kind of even unconscious motivations, um, things things they may not even be aware of, things, um, and 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 just try and understand that. For a psychotic disorder, because um, I know in the history with these guys, there's been you know there's they've been diagnosed I think with with schizophrenia, um, and that's a that's a psychotic disorder that and a big part of schizophrenia is um, hallucinations, um, seeing things that aren't there, hearing things that aren't there. Um, seeing things that, that other people don't see and delusions um, believing things that are you know having having really odd beliefs having beliefs that um, are kind of that, that don't necessarily change and don't kind of um, connect in some way with with normal reality that you or I would 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 understand um, and those beliefs those delusions can be Another fancy word, perseverative, which means kind of you you continue to believe them despite the outward evidence that that's not necessarily true. Yeah, and as you've um, said to me, and this of course goes without saying, the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of people dealing with severe mental illness, including schizophrenia, are not violent and are not dangerous people. Some of the people who have been diagnosed or who are believed to have had schizophrenia include John Nash, who was portrayed in A Beautiful Mind by Russell Crowe. Um, the soloist is about a mentally ill homeless man uh, dealing with schizophrenia who was also an incredible musician. Many people believe that Vincent van Gogh had schizophrenia. So these are people who made beautiful contributions to the world uh, while dealing with this disease. And again, these two people we're talking about today, Kemper and Mullen, are on not only outliers among human beings overall, but outliers among human beings who are dealing with mental illness. They are the worst case, worst case scenario. Right. I've worked with, with people with schizophrenia before, um, so I do have some, uh, some experience um, 
you know, enough a lot of experience in some ways working working in inpatient hospitals and, and testing people with uh, psychotic disorders. And most of the time, from my experience, again, I don't work in a prison environment. I, I'm not a forensic psychologist, but um, you know, the the people that I've worked with who were diagnosed with a with a with a um, psychotic disorder, um, they had perseverative beliefs, they had hallucinations, they had um, all of the all of the symptoms. But my reaction and and how I treated them, it was it, it's a very kind of um, sad experience. It's a very um, stressful experience for, experience for that person. But I think in I think in any kind of um, population, so people with mental illness, that's a population. There's always going to be kind of outliers and people who um, will you know will will commit heinous crimes in the same way that that. Um, People without mental illness, there's there's a percentage of people who also commit heinous crimes where mental illness is not a part of it. I think what's interesting is, you know, when you think about these very odd, strange beliefs, you know, like um, you're trying killing people to try and stop an earthquake or whatever it may be, um, where we as a public are kind of attracted to those ideas and and interested in those ideas. One thing people listening to this are probably thinking we often think that people are faking mental illness to get out of prison. Mm -hmm. Um, And in some ways it's comforting to me at least to believe that someone did this out of mental illness rather than out of, you know, logical, carefully planned abject cruelty. It just makes more sense that someone would only do something like that, that anyone who would do things like Mm -hmm. this is just by virtue of doing this mentally ill. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and you know, we do, there's, there are, um, we do account for that. I mean, anytime we, anytime we do testing, anytime we do any kind of diagnostic kind of um, interview with someone, we're, we have a mind to look at, is this person faking? Is this, is this real? In my experience, it is very hard to, to fake um, a significant, a major mental illness like a psychotic disorder um, because the, the amount of time and the amount of energy and the amount of kind of... Um, you know, the kind of lack of kind of human interaction that you'd have to have in order to kind of follow through if you were just faking a psychotic disorder would be very, very difficult. So for our next segment, we want to lay out how this movie would actually work, the key scenes that you would see to understand who these people are. And I think you obviously need to start with some origin of Ed Kemper and Herbert Mullen to see where they're coming from and how they went down the path that they did. They really couldn't be much more different. Kemper seems like very bad news from a very, very young age, um, doing pretty alarming things. But Mullen is really about as wholesome as you can get uh, as a child. So I think we're going to illustrate this in a couple of scenes showing their interactions with their families. Uh, Kempers is going to be in a fight with his mother. He's always fighting with his mother. And I like to do exposition through argument where she'll throw out a bunch of accusations and those will sort of trigger flashbacks for him that will show us his life. Um, He tortured animals as a kid. She locked him up at night so that he wouldn't hurt his sisters. She refused to coddle him, as she put it, because she thought that it would turn him gay. As a teenager, as we mentioned, he killed his grandparents. He said he wanted to see how it felt to kill grandma. He went to a mental hospital because of that. And at this mental hospital, he was apparently a model patient. 
uh, that kind of goes back to the the way that he would sort of um, ingratiate himself with authorities. Because he was a model patient, he was allowed to interview sex offenders, and unfortunately they gave him terrible advice, which is that you should always kill your victims so that they can't testify against you. Uh, I think we see him coming out of that flashback and his mother telling him he's a real weirdo, which is something she actually said. And I think after we see this horrible fight with his mom, he gets in his car and notices some young women hitchhiking, just foreshadowing of what's to come. Uh, When we meet Mullen, he's going to be checking out of a mental hospital that he agreed to be checked into. He was a popular student. He played football. He was voted most likely to succeed. But when a friend was killed in a car accident, he started to spiral into drugs. Uh, After that, he was once evicted from an apartment for yelling at people who weren't there. Um, there's talk that the drugs may have sort of triggered his uh, mental break. As he's leaving the hospital, I think he goes for a drive just like Kemper did, except he's in the back seat, probably being driven home by his parents, and he mentions something about earthquakes. You know, a big theme of a lot of psychotic disorders tends to be, you know, religious beliefs or like, you know, the devil the devil is inside me or the devil is, is right next to me um, or kind of conspiracy theories you know the government is is you know communicating through my head or something like that um i'm being watched or whatever it may be so um so these these beliefs don't don't come out of nowhere so it isn't very long before kemper and mullen start to act out on whatever is going on in their minds uh on may 7th 1972 kemper picks up two college students murders them and has sex with their bodies Uh, One added layer of tragedy is that he's actually stopped by a police officer for a broken light, but the cop doesn't realize that the bodies are in the trunk. Of course, if he had, um, this all could have stopped right there. On October 13, 1972, Mullen kills a homeless man. He later says that the man sent him a telepathic message, kill me so that others will be saved. Yeah, I mean, you got to remember with like psychotic disorders, you are seeing the world fundamentally in a different way. And um, sometimes that can be really, really distressing because your, your version of the world doesn't match up with, with you know, what's, what's kind of outside, outside of you, reality. Um, we talk about reality testing a lot um, when we, when we um, work with people with schizophrenia, um, their ability to kind of test, you know, test the world around them, test reality. But another thing is you can have these really bizarre beliefs and, you know, you can... You can behave in a way and not have the same kind of emotional reaction that, that someone without a psychotic disorder would have. So, you know, if you truly believe that you're doing something to, to stop, you know, an earthquake from happening, um, you know, you're, 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 you may not have the same kind of guilt reaction or whatever it may be. Just in the same way, if, you know, you or I were to do something that we, that we truly believed was going to save someone we cared about, um, we would we would be able to justify that in our mind. Yeah, and in Act 2, the middle section of this story, I think we're going to see both Mullen's um, ability to justify what he's doing and Kemper's ability to sort of pass a normal life while doing things that are just completely reprehensible and horrific. Um, we're compressing time here, but we're going to see a lot of scenes of Kemper at a cop bar. This is true. He would spend a lot of time at a local cop bar and he sort of chats up cops and tells them how he always wanted to be a cop, but he was rejected because of his height. And I think we'll see scenes where the cops are talking about the killings and how they don't know exactly what's going on. And of course, Kemper, as he listens to them, knows which ones he committed 
and he knows which ones he didn't commit. And I think we can kind of see the wheels turning and his realization that he might be able to pin some of his crimes on someone else. Back to Mullen, he's committing more crimes. He's hearing more voices. He thinks he's the good guy uh, because he's doing these terrible things to save lives in his mind. We're seeing more of Kemper's M.O. He has a University of Santa Cruz sticker on his car because his mom works on campus, and he uses that to present himself as someone sort of safe, like, let me give you a ride. There's a crazy person out here. Uh, You're safe with me. At one point, there's another opportunity for the police to catch Mullen. They come to his house to take away a 44 Magnum that he's not supposed to have, not realizing that he also has a murder weapon, a 22 automatic. Uh, so he evades arrest again. On February 5th, he kills two more women. A week later, Mullen gets caught. He's driving past a man, seating his lawn, pulls over and shoots him. He's arrested moments later, and he explains about the earthquakes. I think at this point, Kemper knows that he can pin pretty much everything on Mullen. Uh, in April 1973, he's gone two months without killing, and then his mother insults him, and he kills her, and kills her best friend. He will later say that he was killing his mother all along, that in his mind, everyone he was killing was his mother, or represented his mother. He drives straight to Pueblo, Colorado. I think at this point, he totally could have gotten away with everything, but he has, I guess what we would call a moment of clarity, and he calls his old cop buddies and turns himself in. He says it had to stop. So they're both behind bars. At one point, they're behind bars in adjoining cells. Interestingly, Kemper treats Mullen with disdain. He calls him just a cold-blooded killer, killing everybody he saw for no good reason. He towers over Mullen physically, and he says that Mullen, quote, had a habit of singing and bothering people when somebody tried to watch TV, so I threw water on him to shut him up. Then when he was a good boy, I'd give him peanuts. Herbie liked peanuts. That was effective because pretty soon he asked permission to sing. That's called behavior modification treatment. So there we see Kemper thinking of himself as kind of a member of the team at the uh, place where they were both being held. Again, aligning himself with authority in his own mind. There's a push and pull between wanting to be connected with the cops, for instance, you know, and and I'm sure you could um, um, hypothesize about what that meant. you know, anytime we deal with with this kind of disorder, um, we want to we, we think about things like early attachments with 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 caretakers, mother and father, whatever that may be. Um, so we think about those things, um, and we think about how those those kind of human kind of relational drives, um, you know, how the, how they were satisfied, how they weren't satisfied, and and at an early age, and then also how they. And then also how as adults, we, we try and kind of get those needs satisfied. Um, and so, so that's, you know, that's, that's, that's something that, that as a psychologist, I, th- I think about a lot. Um, you know, another, it's another important part here is there's, there's kind of mood disorders and psychotic disorders, which, which tend to be kind of states that, that someone has. Um, um, it can, it can come and go in some ways. Um, it can, it can kind of remit with treatment or medication. And there's also personality disorders, which are much harder to, to treat. Um, and they, they tend to be more kind of traits of someone. And again, not a forensic psychologist, but one of the big kind of personality disorders that, that tends to kind of play out, I think in a lot of, um, serial killer narratives or whatever it may be 
is kind of an antisocial personality disorder where you have fundamentally have like a um, no empathy for another human being. You're not interested in connecting with people. Um, so um, you don't you don't you don't see relationships the same way that um, that that someone else would. So and and, and it makes sense that that some of the, that these guys would kind of do well in prison. <laughs> you know, it's a the, the treatment for a lot of psychotic disorders is is structure. Um, you're trying to you're, you're trying to build structure for someone, um, and because it, it helps to kind of regulate their their emotions, uh, regulate their experience, make things kind of organized for them because they have a, such a hard time trying to organize the world around them. Um, so, a lot of people with 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 serious mental illness do well in structured environments. Unfortunately, nowadays most of that treatment is done in the prisons, but that's kind of a you know, broader discussion about uh, mental health treatment in America and uh, the kind of closing of, of mental asylums, things like that. Yeah, I've seen a lot of statistics that someone with a severe mental illness is more likely to have an encounter with a cop than a mental health professional. They're more likely to end up in jail than a hospital. That's right, and we don't necessarily have the kind of infrastructure for um, kind of long-term housing or long-term um, specialized mental health care with someone who needs to be housed and taken care of. Um, in, the, in the 60s, there was kind of a de-institutionalization movement where they closed down a lot of asylums, most asylums, and that was the right thing to do because a lot of the, those places were terrible and you know all the, all the negative um, connotations you have with, with asylums um, were, you know, they were, they were pretty horrific places with a lot of abuse, um, a lot of, you know, um, basically torture of, of, of people. Um, they were closed in, in service of getting people back into the community. The push was for a lot of family-based treatment, treatment based in the community, um, because, you know, and studies have shown and they continue to show that that's 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 the most effective treatment but the problem is there's in some ways there's a lot of less resources now and there are some people who do need that you know kind of more structured inpatient environment that um where they can um they can feel safe um a lot, a lot of the people i work with feel um you or i would be terrified in in, in to be in a hospital like that and um but for, for some people it's a it's a it's kind of a way of kind of staying safe, um, staying connected with other people, feeling like you um, have access to, to, to better medication and uh, better treatment. The, the, the bulk of mental health treatment for, for this population happens in, in prison, um, which tends to be more punitive than um, rehabilitative, um, in, in my opinion. And, and we all understand how people end up in prison after they've committed a crime, of course, but the hope is that you would have good enough mental health treatment and intervention diagnosis to help people who have not committed crimes, who are dealing with this and haven't done anything wrong. So that's right. I mean, one of the things that I'm involved in is early inter intervention programs where um, you, you try and identify um, and work with um, people who young people who um, have the kind of what we call the prodromal symptoms of a psychotic disorder um, and that's been shown to be effective so you're you're the, a psychotic disorder doesn't just happen overnight I mean it's there's there's a slow kind of buildup there's there's symptoms that that you can kind of track and be aware of um, and the more treatment you can get the more um, you know 
taking a low dose of an antipsychotic medication. I'm not a medical doctor, but um, that's that's recommended. Um, you know, getting people involved in group therapy, family therapy is shown to be really effective. So those those kind of florid psychotic symptoms um, don't don't appear, or if they do, there's a, there's kind of a structure of um, there's like a safety net for that person. And all of that wasn't necessarily around back then. And one thing I think we can't say enough is that mental illness is like any illness. I mean, no one asks for this. No one mm-hmm. does anything to get a mental illness. It just it can randomly hit any of us. And if only we could all lift the stigma around it so that people were not afraid to go talk to a doctor when they had the first indication that something was wrong. I mean, the same way you would with any other type of illness. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's... Um there's, you know, there's still stigma to mental health treatment. There's still stigma to, to going to therapy and getting, um, getting care and, and things like that. Um, you know, I, I do psychological testing, but sometimes I, I avoid kind of saying that on the phone. <laughs> you know, it's a, it can be it can be a weird thing to get a call from me and, you know, hi, I'm Dr. Dr. Meggs and you were referred for psychological testing. People still have a reaction to that. The, the more that we try and kind of get it into the primary care, in, into kind of the overall kind of healthcare system, um, more people will be reached, more people will be treated. Okay, back to the silly stuff. Our next segment is casting. Who could play these very complicated characters out of the i'm out of the uh i'm out of it man i don't know but um i do like the guy from from solo i feel like he got a he got a raw deal um i, I don't know what happened to him but yeah alden Ehrenreich. huh yeah that guy yeah he'd be a good one um, maybe maybe as mullen and uh <laughs> i saw black klansman the other night um, oh yeah adam driver kind of looks like the one of the guys who's the guy with long hair <laughs> So Adam Driver as Kemper, he could be, and he's got he's got you know he's got a uh, yeah he's yeah. almost tall enough. So maybe him, yeah. And then and then that would be weird because you'd have two guys who are in Star Wars affiliated movies, <laughs> um, and then you know if you really wanted to, you know they're they're trying to go grittier. You could make this kind of a space. Um, <laughs> a, a space uh, movie about serial killers in space. And, and again, I'm not a space psychologist, so I don't know how mental illness works in space. <laughs> I think I think an interesting way of taking the story is kind of, um, you know, you can you show the inner conflict with these guys. Um, it seems like one of these guys um, has has more of kind of a. Um, uh, it's a little easier to have empathy for him. And- yeah, I mean, because Mullen does come from you know, this stereotypical all-American background, he is kind of easy for an audience to relate to, at, at least more than Kemper, who comes from just a nightmare background. But the strange thing is Kemper kind of does a better job of functioning in society and passing as a normal person. So there's kind of an interesting uh, divide there. For director, I really only have one choice. I think Richard Kelly from Donnie Darko would be great, at, at least more than Kemper, who comes from just a nightmare background. But the strange thing is Kemper kind of does a better job of functioning in society and passing as a normal person. So there's kind of an interesting uh, divide there. For director, I really only have one choice. I think Richard Kelly from Donnie Darko would be great. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think that would be fine. And our last category, what do we call this thing? Dr. John Meggs, do you have any ideas what we could call this thing? No. <laughs> I mean, it's how who, are there are there special people in out out in LA who like title movies? Is that like a special job you can have? Because I feel like that's a really difficult thing. Yeah, I, I guess the screenwriter would have to come up with a title at first, and then the marketing department might take over yeah. and change the title, uh, depending. I I first thought of calling it voices because I just think the the word voices is very resonant and kind of haunting. Um, but I also like the idea of just calling it two killers because it's obviously about these two killers, but then it raises the question of, you know, is there kind of a third killer out there, which is mm-hmm. the disease itself? Yeah. I'm thinking like whatever year this all happened. That's a good one. 19, 1973 or something like that. Because then you can have more uh, 70s music or something like that. You know, um, kind of take the, yeah, take the momentum from Guardians of the Galaxy and just pull it back into into what was actually happening at that time. Yeah, would you rather have your music be in Guardians of the Galaxy or this tiny movie about two serial killers? Yeah, yeah. I'd rather I'd rather listen to those songs and watch you know these horrific killings than watch Chris Pratt um, dancing around on a planet. <laughs> but again, I'm not I'm not a uh, I'm not a um, I'm not a, a music psychologist, so I want to make that clear. You are a dance psychologist. I, I am a dance psychologist, and I can I can stand with authority on that. Yes. <laughs>